life is bigger than just this body. Life continues after this body starts getting weak, starts getting, what would you say? Starts getting, looking like a pear shape instead of a T, uh, or whatever else you can think of when, when our bodies get older, these bodies aren't made to last forever. And as much information and knowledge as we have in our minds as we get older, we can't remember it. There was a day that we used to be able to remember it, and I watch and hear uh, young people memorize Scripture, and I'm like, I can't, I used to be able to do a better job at memorizing Scripture, and now it is hard. It is really hard to memorize a verse and have it stick the next day so that I can come back to it. These bodies aren't made to last forever. However, we can use these bodies for the body of Christ. And I think that would uh, summarize what 1 Corinthians is going to uh, encourage us to do, to use these bodies for his body, the body of Christ, the church. There are three threads, three themes, that if you were to look at a theology or a study of the 1 Corinthians, and as I looked at this in um, commentaries, uh, that they, they bring out these three themes. Unity, kind of like the red on my tie, the primary theme, but also holiness and truth. And what is it like whenever we have unity without holiness or truth? Well, you would have protests. Those people are unified, but there's usually a lack of holiness, like smashing windows and turning over cars. There's a lack of holiness there, but there's unity, right? And then if you've ever been to a, a baseball game or a football game or a hockey game and you're part of the home crowd, there's great unity there. But is there holiness there? Eh, no. Alcohol flows very, very well at those events. And with more alcohol comes less discernment and yelling at the refs, umpires, and all kinds of other things that you don't want to repeat. So there's unity, but lacking holiness. And there's many other ways that we could look at and look at the world, and the world is, is wanting, wanting unity, unity, unity. We don't need to get along and have peace, but if you have peace and unity, Without holiness and truth, you don't have pleasing God. And the Corinthians lacked unity, but they needed unity that was held together with holiness and truth. Kind of like if I took the yellow or blue out of this tie, there would be gaps and this tie would fall apart. It all needs to be held together with all three of these Ideas. So unity without holiness will be earthly, sensual, and demonic. And people are tossed about with every wind of doctrine. And there are churches that are, are very unified, but they aren't godly, they're not holy, and they're not even taught the truth. They're unified around something else. Holiness without unity or truth will be isolating, personal piety, separation from out, without love, you can think of Pharisees in the New Testament or ascetic monks who are so focused on holiness that they separate from everything and everyone, and they're not really influencing the culture as much as they can. And that's not what God, of course, pleases God. 
uh, either. And then truth. Truth without unity or holiness will just be personal, intellectual elitism. And this book will tell us that knowledge without love puffs up. And you can fill your mind with knowledge. You can have the entire Bible memorized and be an awful church member, an awful husband, an awful dad, an awful wife, an awful committee member, and any, an awful employee. It's not just about truth. You can have love for knowledge, but not community or Christ. And many people around us are experts, and they love knowledge and they love truth, but they reject getting along with people or a community or Christ himself. So the church at Corinth was full of immature believers influenced by the immoral, religiously diverse, selfish culture. And if we were to summarize our, the fabric of our culture it would be so similar to Corinth. Immoral, religiously diverse, and selfish. Wow, this book. And the more that we are in this culture, the more this culture is how we think too. And even though God has rescued us and saved us and we've been set free and our chains are gone, we still struggle with the influence in our minds and in our hearts of this culture that is immoral, religiously diverse, and just accept anything. It doesn't have to be true to the Bible. No, just accept it. Or life's all about you. Self-centered culture. And we need this book because we all struggle with pride that causes divisions, deceit, and worldliness in our relationships. Divisions is the opposite of Unity, deceit, the opposite of truth, and worldliness, the opposite of holiness. You can see how this book has a lot to say about our lives, and if we will go back to it often, and as we struggle with pride and pride blinds us, we open our Bibles and say, God, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way. We look into the perfect law of liberty, as James says, and says, God, show me myself here. And he will. Our plan today is to go through the first eight chapters and just get an overview of them. And then I just have the application on the screen for us to see. Since we want God to be glorified on earth, we want him to use these bodies for his glory. We read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. And we will look at chapter 1, verse 9. We can't look at every verse. We will not get through in several hours. So we're just going to look at uh, highlights here, as we did in a preview uh, sermon back in October of 2020. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All believers are called by God into the fellowship of Jesus. Fellowship, partnership, relationship. We're all in Christ. He mentions that over and over again in the first nine verses because this church needed uh, identity, needed a unity, needed truth. Disunity is identified because of a lack of truth about the power and the wisdom of Christ. In a culture that loves information and knowledge and education, 
without Jesus, as the Corinthian culture was too, we have to say, wait a minute, there is not great power in our culture, in our education. There's not great wisdom without Christ. No, this chapter says there is great wisdom and power in Christ. It is Christ who we want as believers to separate us from the world. He has already done that. He has called us. And you see that word called several times here in verses 17 to 25. I'll read those. For Christ did not send me to baptize or to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of, unless the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ is powerful enough without eloquent wisdom of the world. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Let's skip down to verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So because of these wonderful truths, God choosing to redeem foolish, weak, lowly, despised people, if you look around, we're, we're not a church that's full of CEOs and Olympic athletes and billionaires and the elite of our society. Most of our society has no idea your name or my name. We are nobodies in society, in our culture. But we're not nobody to God. And when we're nobodies in society, that actually helps us to realize we're, our only boast, our wisdom, is not in ourselves. It's in our God. Verses 30 and 31, And because of Him... Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's a quote from Jeremiah 9. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man boast in his might. Uh, but let him who boasts, and there's one other that I'm forgetting, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we're only boasting in Jesus. Not in our might, not in our wisdom, not in our power, not in our riches. That was probably the one I missed. Um, we're only boasting in the Lord. God chooses us, sets us apart as holy people. He does this for one reason, so that we would boast in him. Hey, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2. And we'll look at just a few verses here. Verses 16 and 17. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Sorry, looking at my wrong, uh, wrong verse. Verse 12. All right, that was chapter 3. All right, chapter 2 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. God the Father, at the moment of our salvation, He calls us, He places us in Jesus, we boast in Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. Why do we have the Holy Spirit inside of us? Well, verse 12 tells us that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God the Father calls us out of the world to be holy. We must rely on God's person and God's power for our understanding valuable spiritual truths that the world cannot understand. You know, as much as the world can read the Bible, they can see the, understand the stories of the Bible, but without the Spirit of God inside them, we've already seen in chapter 1, it was fool, the cross is foolishness to them, but all of, this, all of God's truth is, is foolishness to them too. They can't understand it because they are spiritually discerned, chapter 2 says. So God saved in Corinth and in our church, not by human wisdom or eloquence. God doesn't choose people because of their wonderful abilities and gifts and talents. He chooses, with an obvious, he chooses people with an obvious lack of those of which we are one. So that all of us, them and us today, could see that God uses His Word, His Son, and His Spirit. God doesn't need us. We need Him. And He's starting this book where He's challenging the Corinthians' practices later, but He's helping them to think reasonable, godly, humble thoughts. Boast only in Jesus. And the culture says, boast in yourself. And, he said, and the culture says, rely on your own power. Make it happen. Go out and do something. And God says here, to understand the really good wisdom and knowledge of God, you have to have the Holy Spirit. You have to have God's wisdom. And you have to rely on Him. God doesn't give us proud Christians the really good wisdom. Proverbs 2 uh, says that as well. God gives the really sound wisdom to the upright, to the humble. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Part of his grace is his power. That's chapter 2. Now chapter 3. We must all grow in spiritual holiness and truth. And as this church is, is challenged with holiness and truth, and as they start to work together, it's coming together for them. And by the end of the book, uh, we're hearing of you guys are trusted to help people. And you're relying on God and you're seeing people saved. And now I'm going to send you helpers and you're going to help them. And the second book, uh, 2 Corinthians, is going to really help them uh, to focus on ministry. Um, and so chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we have, do you not know? We hear it several times in this chapter, in chapter 6. And here we have this focus again on the body, verse 16. Do you not know that you are, the God, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, and he has to be talking about this physical body, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Every single Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that later he's going to say, whatever you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. 
And sometimes, as adults, we eat and drink things that we don't like. Why? Because it's not about us. It's about glorifying God. This body's the temple. We take care of this body as best we can. Uh, we know it's wearing out. We know it doesn't last forever. But we are responsible to take care of these bodies because these bodies are God's temple. And if we knowingly do things that are destructive to this body, God will destroy us. Wow, that sounds pretty serious. Yeah, but these Corinthians, in their childish, um, carnal thinking in the beginning of chapter 3, needed this strong warning. God is going to judge us for how we used our bodies, immaturely for ourselves or maturely and humbly for Christ. So what do we need in chapter 3? Our only boast is in Christ's likeness. Let's go to verses 21 to 23, end of the chapter. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Don't boast. Let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in themselves. Anytime someone comes to you and boasts in anything that they do, especially spiritually, it turns you off so fast. Like, oh man, don't. Let other people praise you, not yourself. It is disgusting. Why, why is it disgusting to all the world when people boast in themselves? Because we all are made in the image of God. We're made to hate pride. But we often, we can't see our pride until someone says, hey, you know what? When you boasted about yourself, about something you did even spiritually, it came across really arrogant, really proud. And that's carnal. That's immature. And uh, we are only boasting in God. Why? Because we are Christ and Christ is God. We need to turn our backs, though, on worldly selfish wisdom so that we boast only in our Christ-likeness. And who gets all the glory for our Christ-likeness? Christ. We don't get glory. As soon as we think that we have done something really special and God is really using us, eh, that's proud. Go back to we're only boasting in Christ. Christ gets all the glory for anything good. We get all the blame for anything bad in our lives. That's how we need to think. Over and over again as a church, we challenge ourselves and we challenge others uh, to live this way. Think this way. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So we're not boasting in men, and we're, nor are we allowing people to evaluate our, our lives because we're servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. We need to be found faithful, right? But God, who knows better how to judge and will judge perfectly, all dis divisive, self-centered believers will benefit from knowing that God will judge. And then verses 11 to 13 in this chapter to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When we reviled, we bless. When we persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and are still like the scum of the world. 
the refuse of all things. We have examples of people that are hard-working ministers in humility. We at times think we're kings. Paul says, you guys are like kings. And you guys have been taught by us, and we are like the scum of the earth. And you guys are so exalted and high, and you're not thinking that you have an example in Paul and um, Barnabas and uh, Silas, Timothy, Apollos, and Peter, Cephas, and of course in Christ, who are all examples of hardworking ministers in humility. And if you need someone to be an example, look for people in our church who are hard laborers, who are abounding in the work of the Lord, and they don't want to take credit for it. They're just, they're just serving and learn from them. We all can learn more, and we have examples in our lives as Christians that we don't value people that are really, that are gold medalists, that are Super Bowl champions, that are MVPs, that are uh, sharks on Shark Tank, that are billionaires, that are whatever it is that you value. Really smart, really funny people. We don't value that. What do we value as Christians? Hardworking ministers of the gospel who are humble. That's our example, okay? And that's what Paul says in chapter 4. We all need an example, and Paul was that example uh, for, for the Corinthians. We need to follow examples of Christ-like powerful, selfless servants of the church. And what are these selfless servants doing in chapter 4? Let's look at verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, and as I teach them everywhere in every church. You guys aren't unique. I'm teaching, you, I'm teaching all the churches the same way. I'm teaching you uh, to follow our ways in Christ. So we're following Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ, he says later. Verse 21. What do you wish as I come? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? If you need rebuked, you don't want Paul there rebuking you. You'd rather when he comes to find you abounding in the work of the Lord, not boasting in yourself, boasting in Christ, and he comes and he just encourages you. But it's like a, a disobedient child or an obedient child. When the parent walks in the room, they're going to come with a rod in judgment or with love and a spirit of gentleness. That's chosen by the child, not the parent. That's chosen by every one of us every day. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord, or do we need God's word to come like a rod, like a hammer that's going to break our hard heart in pieces and, uh, because we're so proud? Following Christ-like examples, boasting in Christ, relying on God's power, only boasting in our Christ-likeness and giving Christ all the glory. And then, uh, as we struggle with humility and holiness and truth, using these bodies to follow Christ-like examples. It is great to have Christ-like examples in flesh and blood that worship with you, that you can sit at coffee, that you can sit at a meal, you can have them over to your house, and you can ask them questions. 
This is what Paul did for the Corinthians and helped them and sent them Timothy, sent them Apollos, and they're encouraged by Peter and other leaders, and I'm sure they had pastors and elders that uh, ministered uh, in their church and helped them, and uh, we all need to be Christ-like, selfless servants. All right, we're half done. Chapter 5, only boast in Jesus. All right. I forgot to put the notes in. I'm sorry. This is exactly like the last slide, and chapter 5 through 8 is not like chapter 1 to 4. All right, so I'll just have to go off my notes and stay on here until we get to our, our praying. All right, chapter 5. We're going to look at just one verse in chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5 and verse, uh, let's get a little context of chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is in the context of someone who has his, uh, his father's wife, probably his stepmom, and they are being immoral together, incestuous relationship. The church thinks we are doing a loving thing by allowing this, and what are they forgetting? They may have unity, but they don't have holiness or truth. And so without holiness or truth, uh, unity is not a good thing. And so Paul's going to give them uh, an understanding of what they should do uh, to help re retain or re restore the holiness that they need. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ paid for your sins and the sins of of your congregation, but you cannot allow sin, unrepentant, public sin, to go unrebuked, unchallenged. This is not how the body of Christ needs to function. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival of the Passover, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you can see here, when they had unity and they didn't have the sincerity of holiness and truth, Paul rebukes them. And so for us, we need boldness to deliver unrepentant saints to Satan so the body of Christ can represent him in sincerity and truth. And he says later, I want you to deliver him to Satan so he learns not to, or verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. If you were this man, would you, what would you be thinking? Well, you'd probably be thinking, I don't care what that church does, I'm out of here. They can do whatever they want, they can talk about whatever they want, and that's probably what we do today. Like, if you got disciplined out of our church, you would just say, drop everybody on Facebook, unfollow everybody on Instagram, I want no connections, I don't care what you guys do, you guys are crazy, and you're a cult, or whatever you would call us as you leave. And um, we would encourage you to repent and say the door is open when you repent, you're welcome to come back after you repent. But here he says, deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, of his body. I don't know how long this man takes to repent in chapter, in uh, the second book he does, so it was probably quickly because these books are written close to each other within a year. 
But if this man doesn't repent for years and he does come back repentant, his body's going to look a lot older. Why? Because Satan had his way with this man, and, this, and that's what was said here. So there is judgment. If you refuse to walk with God, you will um, need a church to be bold enough and healthy enough, caring for unity with holiness and truth to say, you have two choices, repent and turn from your sin and get out of that incestuous relationship or there's the door. And it doesn't just need to be all of us as leaders. You need to have this kind of love for people and hatred for their sin because their sin, and as they live in sin, they're destroying themselves anyway. We see that from Proverbs. The person who commits immorality is destroying his own body. That's wisdom from Proverbs 6.32. And so we can't allow um, gross immorality and things to, um, to corrupt the body of Christ. We have to be bold, delivering unrepentant saints to Satan so the body of Christ can represent him. It's all about Christ, using these bodies for the body of Christ so that Christ gets glory. And when Christ is not getting glory and we allow sin to go unchecked and unrepentant in our body, we are destroying the picture of Christ and his church and the purity, and we're not truthful and we're not even bold enough to maintain uh, the unity here. So that's chapter 5. Chapter 6, uh, we'll look at several verses here in verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So in talking about judgments, and a church that is going to discipline someone is also a church that could, in their selfishness and pride, say, we're going to go on a witch hunt for every single sin in everyone's life in our church, and we're going to just, whoa, we're just going to get really adamant and swing it the pendulum the other way and say, okay, everyone who's got anything, we're going to go to court. We're going to resolve this. And Paul says, don't go to court. You can resolve issues. Christians should never take Christians to court. There are a few exceptions, but as a general rule, uh, when a Christian breaks the law and is, um, we'll just say breaks the law and the police need to be involved, Okay, yes, then that, that's a different situation. But that's not what uh, the, a lot of what should happen uh, in, in, in churches or among Christians from other churches. You could get uh, leaders from other churches together and say, you know what, this uh, believer in our church has something issue with this believer and your church. Can we uh, get our leadership together? Let's hear the case. Let's talk about it and let's have a resolution that we can... Um, if, if it's not a criminal case and the, the law doesn't need to be involved. But it says uh, we are competent with God's word and we would have people like a jury that would know God's word uh, and be able to apply it. So Christians should never take another believer to court. Justice should come from saints because they will judge the world one day. We're not lacking justice. We're not of brushing things under the rug that need to be dealt with. No, we're, we are bringing justice in a way without having things like a civil court cases in, in mind. 
the other option when a believer wrongs you instead of you taking them to court and getting your uh, justice is to just suffer the injustice personally. You say, that's not right. Okay, I didn't write this. God writes this. And he says in verse 7, To have lawsuits at all with another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Proud people don't want to suffer wrong when they know that I could sue this person and get a lot of money. But humble people can suffer wrong and be defrauded. And yes, it hurts but they can move on because it's not about them. This is about the body of Christ. This is about the glory of Christ. And verse 8, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, and no one's willing to uh, be humble in, this, in these situations. So taking, uh, using uh, this body to demand justice The corrupt world is in no position to bring holy, truthful unity to God's people. You may have broken the law, but you aren't going to be... The law cannot restore marriages as a church can help restore marriages. That's just one example of you can go with your your ex or your separated partner to, um, to court, but a church could do a better job at bringing justice and hopefully... Encourage reconciliation if possible. And um, that's just one example. But a corrupt world is in no position to bring holy, truthful unity because they don't operate with a complete Bible as their guide for justice, where a church would. Verses 19 and 20 is the passage, uh, 12 to to 20, is the passage on personal purity and fleeing sexual immorality. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God buys these bodies with the precious blood of Jesus. So we use these bodies not to take other people to court, not to get our pound of flesh, not to overlook someone who is in sin in our church, not to boast about these bodies, but to give all the glory to Christ, boasting in Christ, pointing people to Christ, and pursuing purity with these bodies because Jesus bought these bodies. So let's glorify Him alone, boasting in Christ alone, focused on only Christ's likeness. Um, following Christ-like examples, chapter 5, boldness to exercise church discipline so that the body of Christ stays pure, and then pursue personal purity uh, with these bodies in chapter 6. Chapter 7, two more chapters. Chapter 7, verse 12. This is a long chapter. Um, A lot of truth here. In chapter 12, or uh, chapter uh, 7, Verses 12 to 16, we have uh, people in our church that live in a, uh, in a home where a spouse is not a believer. And we can think that if you're in a home where your spouse is not a believer, that you are less of a Christian because your spouse is a believer. That's not what this passage says. This passage says, 
Your home is made holy by your presence, not the other way around. So that encourages greatly. As the Corinthians would have people in their church as they are getting saved uh, and husband or wife gets saved and their spouse doesn't get saved for a time or, or never gets saved. And yet those uh, people are coming and worshiping. I wonder how they fit in a church without their whole family there. And look at verses 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, that she consents to live with him, that he, she, that he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. It doesn't say the believing wife is made impure by her unbelieving husband. That's not what it says. It says the unbelieving husband is made holy, not, this isn't salvation, but there is God's blessing on the home whenever your spouse doesn't know Christ by your being there. That matches what Noah did for the world, what Lot did for Sodom and Gomorrah, and if there were 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole wicked city, cities, would have been spared. That matches that. So in a home, a home is made holy by one believer there. And I hope you're encouraged by that, if you're the one. Verse uh, 14 continues, is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They have a front row seat to the unity and the holiness and truth that we enjoy as a church, and you're taking that home with you, and you're helping in your home to show people the glory of Christ in a way that they will not have if you're not there. And that encourages people who um, are in these relationships. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates and they want a divorce, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister who is a believer is not enslaved. We would say that they're free to remarry. Um, God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? And let each person lead the life that is assigned to them. So that is... Um, that situation, and then there's the unmarried and the widows in chapter uh, 7, verses 25 to 40. A lot of this section has to do with that, and we'll just look at verse 34. Verse 32 to 34. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And that's not sinful. That's not wrong. He's just saying, if you're married, you have an obligation to, to care for your wife and your, and your family, which keeps you attached to the world and how to please your wife. Not, not a problem. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is, woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. Neither one of those is wrong. He's just arguing that singleness is a really good thing. And it's really good because now you can use this body instead of pleasing your spouse and always thinking about them, which keeps you uh, attached to the world in a way that single people don't have that attachment. You are free to focus on giving more time and more effort to the things of the Lord. And so don't 
don't think that you're less of a person if you're in a church where I just came uh, a couple days ago uh, speaking in a, a marriage conference, or we had Valentine's Day, and uh, that's hard for people that are single, um, and we need to understand that as a church, but Paul's encouraging these people that are married to unsafe uh, spouses or that are, are single, don't let that discourage you from, you can have wonderful unity and holiness and truth in this body of Christ, and you can be a wonderful part of it, and you should be uh, to use your body, your time to focus on the things of the Lord and, uh, and God may have you uh, meet someone someday, and if he doesn't, your focus is on the things of the Lord, and that will be very attractive to a godly spouse, a potential spouse in the future anyway. So just focus on the things of the Lord. We need to use our bodies to please our spouse if married, or the Lord alone if not married. These bodies are not for us. They are for him. They are for others. God gave us these bodies and chapter, the end of chapter 6 tells us these bodies aren't for you. You're bought with a price. Glorify God. So what do you do if you're married, not married, married to unbeliever? He answers all those questions in chapter 7. And it's still the same thing. Your body's not yours. It belongs to God. It belongs to your spouse if you're married. And uh, so please God, please your spouse, not yourself. All right, chapter 8, and we're done. Verses 4 uh, through 7 in chapter 8. We get into food offered to idols and conscience issues and chapters 8 through 10. And we'll just look at chapter 8 today, verses 4 to 7. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That would be some truth, okay? For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He is giving us holiness and truth after truth after truth here that we love as Christians and hold to and will not um, deviate from these wonderful truths. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. And we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So this is private as we choose to eat, and some people uh, saved out of idolatry could never eat uh, meat in, their, in a good conscience if it was sacrificed to idols for a time until they got this knowledge and this truth that's given in verses 4 uh, to 6. So truth without love puffs up. That's the beginning of chapter 8. It puffs up believers privately in your home, in your heart, in your mind. What the early church and our church constantly needs is a balance between good truth, idols don't really exist, and our earthly existence is from the Father and through Christ. It's all about Christ and we're free then from all things idolatrous. Okay, we need that good truth. We also need to love those in our church that have a weaker conscience on differing issues. There are thousands of issues that Christians disagree on. How should you celebrate Halloween? How should you celebrate Christmas? Uh, what should you do? Um, what is uh, the standards of music or dress or all kinds of things that there have been so much debate about? And um, 
and there's a lot of different things. And we see it in marriages too, right? It's not just uh, in a church. It's in marriages. It's in siblings. We have uh, ways of looking at things differently. There are hundreds, hundreds of these extra-biblical issues outside of the Bibles, uh, right and wrong, sin and, um, and right um, way to look at things that confront two or more believers on what is holy and pleasing to God and what is not. So how do we have unity? We please God by privately loving other believers who disagree with us on extra-biblical choices about how we interact in our culture. We please God by privately loving other believers who disagree with us on extra-biblical issues. We don't go back home at lunchtime and talk about a conversation that we had in private with someone who disagrees with us on any number of things. If it's not in the Bible, it's not clearly a worldly holiness issue or a wrong right issue or a sin uh, and truth issue. We don't need to discuss it allow people to come to their own conclusions. You can tell them, this is how I came to this conclusion. This is the truth that God uses, how I'm applying these verses, um, but I don't need to cause division. So we're going to pray. And I've asked uh, two men to pray. If Brandon, if you'll pray for the third before you lead uh, the final, I'll put the prayers up here. Uh, you are welcome to pray silently in your pew with these men. Uh, but David and then Hutch, and then Brandon uh, will pray uh, for us along the lines that we have just been challenged uh, from 1 Corinthians.